This is Dirt Cheap from Neon Hum Media. I'm Jeffrey Golden. And I'm Amanda Meadows. And we're reading Murder in the Glass Room by Edwin Rolf and Lester Fuller. <laughs> Amanda, we are still reading this book, and it gets better and better every time we return to this well. <laughs> yeah, it's a gross well, but we keep coming back to it. The We're smell here. is intoxicating in its way. There's something about it. It's like you can't smell away. <laughs> so we're on the second half of Chapter 11. Uh, Amanda, do you remember what happened in the first half? The first half was a whirlwind of misogyny. Absolutely. He took it to new heights. Phil went to that dance club where the dancing ladies dance for money. Yeah. They're there to provide a service and be tipped heavily. Right. Phil... Being gross, mm-hmm. looking and smelling gross almost certainly, too, because he still has not showered. I think we know for sure that he looks gross. Yes. He is going from girl to girl, asking for Ed, saying, Edna sent me. Edna sent me. Yeah. Until you know all of-, <laughs> of them are talking to each other about the weird guy who, did, wait, did he dance with you and ask <laughs> about Edna? Yeah. I need you to tell me about a woman who has been killed in the news. <laughs> By a man who looks like me, whose face is in the paper. <laughs> Can you help me? 50 different women in the dance club. Yeah, in order of his attraction to them, too. Right. Uh, which is, wow. He gets a lead, and so he needs to meet Muriel at the Tiki Bar. Right. Uh, where he is not looking forward to seeing all that fucking bamboo. It's just a weird opinion. It is weird to me. I love a Tiki, 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 Tiki Bar, you know? <laughs> Amanda, remember when you and I were the king and queen of a pop-up tiki nightclub? Yes, we were. For one beautiful night, we were god and goddess. <laughs> there was this, it was at uh, Clifton's. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, at the Seven Seas Bar. The Seven Seas Bar. and they had the Coconut Club. It was called Coconut Club, and they would have this monthly tiki bar in L.A. that would pop up. And every night they would vote for, like, the king and queen of Coconut Club. And we we made it. We made it. We made it. We, and- we lobbied and campaigned hard, though. I mean, it was definitely, <laughs> you know, we really, <laughs> we, we advertised on every table. Absolutely. And- <laughs> we were relentless. We spent a lot of money to be the tiki king and queen. But we did it. We achieved our dreams. <laughs> now you can't. <laughs> COVID has ended all dreams. <laughs> dreams are, are on, on delay. All right, let's let's get tiki 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 started. Yes, yeah. all right. Was well, yes, we're very animated about this tiki situation, and I'm sure Phil is going to fuck it up uh, in a new, exciting way. Absolutely. Chapter eleven, part two. I entered the tropical jungle through a rustling screen door. It was a small place, and it looked smaller because every possible bit of unused space was taken up with potted palms set in bamboo-covered pots. The plants wilted in the thick, fetid air, and most of the big leaves hung yellow and withered from the stalks. There was a bar at one side and four or five semi-partitioned table booths along the other. The whole place was dimly lighted, 
and the bamboo shades on the lamps made it even darker. The bar was crowded. I walked over to the darkest corner of it and asked for a scotch and soda. The bartender looked at me curiously, and I felt the eyes of the barflies on my neck. I realized the order for scotch and soda had been a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) What? Yeah, I mean, what do you get at a tiki bar? You don't get a scotch and soda. You get a Tiki Whistler's Delight. There are tiki drinks with scotch in them. It's going to become a fruit salad on its way to you, and you have to be okay with that. You have to love that, in fact. Frankly, I think Phil should embrace the fun. I think he should. Right now, as he's running from the police. It attracted attention in a joint of this kind, and attention was what I wanted most to avoid. My feeling of invisibility had completely vanished, I felt wide open and vulnerable again. I took the drink. I edged away from the bar and looked toward the booths. A man and a woman were deep in a clinch in the booth nearest me. Their half-filled glasses were on the table in front of them. I tried to make out the color of the woman's hair, but the light was too dim. The next booth was occupied solely by a child, about 10 years old, who sat propped up against the back of the seat, his mouth open, fast asleep. Amanda, there's a child at this bar alone. There's a child passed out drinking alone. I'm going to assume Wait, there's like a lot of drinks in front of him. This is a way to spend your time. I'm, you know, it's 1945. Your parents don't care about you. I yeah. guess you ran away from the factory you were working in. There's no Nickelodeon <laughs> to watch. You're not watching cartoons. Uh, there's no internet yet. There's no internet. So you're, what do you do? You're going yeah. to a bar. In the third booth, sitting alone, was a girl drinking. From the movement of her arms and her head when she lifted the glass to her lips, I could tell she had had just a few too many. I walked closer to look at her, trying to move as if I were just wandering around the place. When I came up close, I put my drink down on the table opposite her. Mind if I sit down? I asked. Her head wobbled up to look at me. Who are you? She asked suspiciously, her voice thick and a little out of control. Johnson's the name, I said. Pete Johnson. How is a voice thick? I I guess I'm doing it like Harley Quinn. Which I appreciate. Which is my interpretation of that (laughs) note. But yeah. How is it that Phil has not thought to change his pseudonym? (laughs) And so, because at some point, right, if all these people are like interrogated by the police, they're all going to be like, oh, yeah, it was this Pete Johnson. And so they're all going to put it together that it's the same person. Yeah. So it's like, it's not going to, it's only like one layer away from figuring out it's Phil Norris. If he kept using different pseudonyms, at least it would be like, oh, okay, well, this guy was named Pete Johnson, but this guy was named Dick Longley, but this guy was named Pete Hardford, you know? And so <laughs> it's like, oh, these are, must be three different guys, says the police detective. Johnson's the name, I said. Pete Johnson. Go away. Go away and beat it to hell, she suddenly screamed. Bothering me all the time. Mind your own goddamn business, why don't you? You coppers, always asking questions. 
<laughs> I like her energy. Uh, I love her energy. She is giving me strong a cab, no snitching uh, energy, and I think that's really good. I, she's probably the only good person <laughs> that Phil has encountered so far in this journey. Yeah, because she is refusing it. to talk to him. Yep, that is the right way to react to someone like Phil walking up to you. <laughs> I'm not a cop. That's what the other one said, she screamed again. Leave me alone, why don't you? Just then, a huge guy tapped me on the shoulder. He was built like Tony Galento, only taller, about my height. Now, as listeners know, I read ahead, so I've read the, the this chapter already. So I was prepared when I saw Tony Galento. I was like, who is Tony Galento? And Amanda... I would like to tell you about Tony Galento. <laughs> Thank you. Because you, you keep saying Tony Galento. Tony Galento has one of the best Wikipedias I have ever seen. I'm just going to read to you passages from Tony Galento's Wikipedia. <laughs> but I encourage all of you at home uh, to read more and learn more about Tony Galento. Uh, I know I will be. Tony Galento was an American heavyweight boxer, nicknamed Two-Ton for his reasoning to his manager for being nearly late to one of his fights. I had two tons of ice to deliver on my way here. Galento was one of the most colorful fighters in the history of the sport. He wrestled an octopus and boxed a kangaroo as publicity stunts for his fights. Oh my God. He also boxed a 550 pound bear as a stage attraction. This is such an American hero. You're absolutely right. Yes. This is the most American person. This is also really good. Galento was also known to refrain from showering to encourage body odor in a strategy to distract his opponent. Oh my God, I think that was like in a cartoon once and I, that must have been a reference to, to this dude. Uh, uh, another boxer, Max Bear, commented, he smelled of rotten tuna and a tub of old liquor being sweated out. <laughs> this is the last part I'll read, uh, which is from the training section. Galento, who claimed to be 5'9", liked to weigh in at about 235 pounds for his matches. He achieved this level of fitness by eating whatever, whenever he wanted. A typical meal for Galento consisted of six chickens, a side of spaghetti, all washed down with a half gallon of red wine or beer or both in one sitting. He's eating like Andre the Giant, but he's like the size of Tay Diggs. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, wait, I know that I was going to stop reading, but I'm going to read just a tiny bit more okay. because this, is, this part is so good. He was reputed to train on beer and allegedly ate 52 hot dogs on a bet before facing heavyweight Arthur Dekah. Galento was supposedly so bloated before the fight that the waistline of his trunks had to be slit for him to fit into them. <laughs> Galento claimed that he was sluggish from the effects of eating all those hot dogs and that he could not move for three rounds. Nevertheless, Galento knocked out the 6-3 Deku with one punch, a left hook in the fourth round. 
that's incredible. He spent three rounds just kind of warming up well, to he was digest a, those hot dogs and then them. efficiently just kind of knocked him out in one blow. Oh, Tony Galento. So anyway, this was a uh, a wonderful discovery. Thank you, uh, Lister, for indulging me. Uh, but I, I thought, uh, Amanda, that you would wow. enjoy learning about Tony. Th- that's that's the best reference in the book so far. Yeah. I'm very impressed. Be right back. He must have weighed close to 300 pounds. He had a half-empty glass in his right hand. Hoy, he said in a friendly, drunken voice. Hi, I said. They say drinking ruins the health, he said, belching down into my face. (coughs) That's what they say. I tried to keep my voice amiable. They say it runs a body down, I agreed. But it's a lie, he bellowed. A damn dirty lie, I said. I agree with you, mister, and pointed to the glass in my hand. A filthy, miserable, lousy lie, he roared. Again, I nodded, but it wasn't enough for him. Its voice became softer, huskier. Take me, for instance. Just look at me. Look at this stomach. Feel it. Just feel it. Muscle. All muscle. That's what it is. All muscle. This is wild. So, like, this is just a tiki bar full of cartoon characters. Absolutely. It's a tiki bar. I love it. You never know what you're going to find. I said, you're right, mister. Punch it, he said, spreading out his hands and pushing the stomach forward again. Look, I believe you, I began. Punch it. Just punch it. There was nothing else for me to do, so I gave him a light tap on the belly. The elephant seemed insulted. Call that a punch? He yelled. Call that a punch? You call that miserable tap a punch? That's a love tap, that's what it is. Punch me, punch me hard. Suddenly he grabbed me by the collar and lifted me to my feet. Look, I said, I didn't come here to play. You punch me in the belly, you pansy, he yelled. Punch me as hard as you can. Give it all you've got. As he bellowed, he pulled my head close to his, and I heard him whisper in my ear, Stanley wants you. At the same time, I felt his hand go into my pocket. Then he slapped the pocket sharply, and something crackled inside, something that might have been a piece of paper. Punch me, the giant roared. You know, at this point, Phil and Stanley have not... They haven't seen each other since Edna introduced them. Right. Yeah, Phil went to his office, but he wasn't there. Right. Right. He was in Washington. or Right, but then Tommy saw him again, recognized him or didn't, Uh, we think. Well, right. Yeah, that's true. It was weird. He acted as if he didn't recognize him. Maybe he did. Mm. At that moment, the bartender came up. He looked at the big guy in disgust. You've had too many, Doc, he said gently. The giant yelled out, All I do is ask a simple favor. I ask the man a simple favor like a gentleman, and he ain't man enough to oblige. All I ask him is to punch me in the gut hard. The bartender led him, still complaining to the door. Hey, the girl said, did you forget about me? 
I turned back to her and smiled. I wouldn't be very smart if I did, would I, baby? <laughs> He's so smooth. Oh, this is such a, like, James Bond moment for him. <laughs> he feels so powerful. <laughs> yeah, in this next passage, uh, there's a pejorative is used to describe uh, little people. And uh, you can skip ahead about a minute to, uh, so you don't have to hear it, if you don't want to hear it. You all alone? I asked. She looked at me as if I were kidding. Funny question, she said. All alone? Sure I'm all alone, unless there's a midget here somewhere. She took a long swallow of her drink and bent down so that her head was half under the table. Hey, she yelled. Hey, you, midget, you down there? And after a pause, any midget down there? <laughs> you can't like any character in this book for more than, like, <laughs> no. the first introductory sentence. Again, she paused as if listening. Then she lifted herself back to a sitting position. You see, she said, no midget, not even a midget. She was what they call a dirty blonde, and her face was pretty in the dim light, but I couldn't really tell, and I wanted to be sure. I held a pack of cigarettes out to her. Sure, she said. I lit a match and held it in front of her face. Her hand shook and her head wobbled slightly, so I had a tough time getting the cigarette lighted, but I did get a good look at her. She was pretty in a baby face way. And if this was the girl, Shelley had been right. The eyes were tired and red-rimmed and bloodshot. Her cheeks were puffed out, especially under the eyes, and the lines around her mouth and jaw sagged. Her whole face looked slightly bloated, and I couldn't tell in that brief glimpse whether it was her natural state or whether it was just because she was drunk. Do you get the feeling that he describes people more when he doesn't like them? It feels that way. Like, if he likes you, he's like, you're big and warm. Right. But if, you're, if he, like, doesn't like you, he's it's like, like oh, you have bloodshot that, eyes. And the crow's feet on one <laughs> eye is a little deeper than the other eye. It just gets really detailed. <laughs> she reached for the glass and downed a long swallow, choked a bit, and coughed. <coughs> Maybe you ought to stop, I said. Don't want to stop. Maybe it would be better. Better for who? She looked at me suspiciously. For you. For me, too. Better for both of us. She smiled at me for the first time. For both of us? Yes. Both of us? She repeated. Then, you like me? Sure. Why would I be sitting with you if I didn't? I don't know, she said. I'm all alone. Not anymore. I'm here. No, she insisted. All alone. Nobody left in the world except me. I'm here. She took a sip at her glass. Phil, Phil is kind of gaslighting her here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because clearly, I mean, she should, he should know what she's talking about. Right. It's, it's obvious that she doesn't mean I am literally alone <laughs> In this moment, she's saying, I'm alone in life. There's nobody who cares for me in the world. Yeah. And Phil is like, I'm here right now. Acknowledge that I'm here. Not all men are not here for you. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my God. Yes. Hashtag not all men. Hashtag not all men. <laughs> yeah. But you know he, what I mean? Yeah, he, absolutely. He is doing that 
because it's like, like you said, he doesn't know how to not be the center of a thing because he's just like this throbbing need, just <laughs> right. like just needing <laughs> things. And uh, so, yeah, when someone else like presents their feelings to him, he just dismisses them. Right. He can't, he has to, re he rejects the information that's coming his way. Yep. Because it's like, no, I'm, you, <laughs> you need to get what I'm pushing, which is me. <laughs> me, Phil Norris, get on the Phil train. Yeah, it's like, it's easier Doo -doo. to just be like, you, no, you, your problems don't exist anymore because I'm standing here now. Right. Back to me. right back. She took another sip at her glass. You're a stranger. I don't want to be. To be what? A stranger. She laughed at that. Laughed as if it were a huge joke that she'd just caught on to. She began to seem more relaxed, and she started the immemorial game with her knees under the table. She did it in a fumbling way, but even so, I could tell how slick she would have been at it if she'd been operating with her mind clear. What's your name? I asked. What's yours? Johnson. Pete Johnson. She drained her glass. I hadn't touched mine at all. It was foul stuff, and I had no reason to get cockeyed on foul stuff. Not on good stuff either. Just to keep the talk going, I asked her if she wanted another drink. Sure, she said but not this junk. What's the matter with this junk? It's hogwash. Let's go someplace else. Where? Home. Where's home? You'll see. She got up and leaned against the table, swaying. I held her arm to keep her steady. I steered her towards one of the benches facing the ocean railing, but she held back. What's the matter? I asked. You're not gonna do it, are you? Do what? She started to cry. Throw me into the ocean. Throw you where? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little speechless. So, okay, so like the tiki bar is like literally right against the ocean. Yeah, I guess you just like it's, walk there's out. Just and a, there's just a railing <laughs> and you can just fall. <laughs> fall right into, the, right into the sea. Throw you where? Over, just throw me over. She pointed to the railing and sobbed, tears streaking down her makeup. I know it, I know it, she wailed. You're gonna throw me over. I tried to shush her. Why would I want to do that? I said. Everybody wants to throw me over, everybody. Listen, baby, I told her. You wouldn't be any good to me if I threw you over, would you? Her tears stopped as suddenly as they had started. <laughs> Phil as, as romance. Phil romance. You this, wouldn't be good for sex a, if you were dead in the ocean. I'm not as into dead women. <laughs> Her tears stopped as suddenly as they had started. No, she said, laughing suddenly. No. Nor me to you, I added. I got her to sit down next to me. She shivered and said, I'm cold. I did what was expected, put my arm around her, and I felt her snuggling up close to me, as close as she could get. You haven't told me your name yet, I said. You haven't either. Sure I have, Pete, Pete Johnson, remember? It's a cute name, she laughed. 
Now, what's your name? Muriel. Hey, hey, he did it. He almost found out her name just in time for her to almost maybe kill herself yeah. in front of him. Uh, I'm glad he found that out before anybody ended up in the ocean. Yay. <laughs> you did it. You did it, Phil. It's not. This isn't great. Oh, boy. I'd expected it all along, but now that she'd said it, I felt suddenly lightheaded. This is it, I thought. This is where I hit the right trail at last. This can't be like the others. This has got to be it. Well, she said. Well, what? Isn't it a cute name, too? Cute as buttons. She pulled away from me a little. Let's go, she said. I want a drink. I don't want any more bars. No more bars? I hesitated for just a second, but she spotted it. Then she almost snarled at me. What's the matter? Ain't I good enough? The cold air had sobered her up a little. I looked straight at her, and then I looked at her breasts, and then down below at her broad hips and down to her toes. I did it slowly, and then I reversed the sizing up, all the way, slowly, until I was looking at her eyes again. The smoothest move. In history. I mean, this is even crazier than the one at Shea Adele. It's like he's going, I looked straight at her, then to the breasts, then down to her hips, then to her toes, doing this all slowly, then did it all in reverse. Actually, okay. I want to see it all acted out. I want to see a pair of eyeballs do that. Just do all those directions. Just (laughs) bing-bonging up and down. Sure, I said. You're just what I want. You'll do fine. I said it as... (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I can't move on from that. (laughs) You'll do fine. You'll do fine, sport. That'll do. (laughs) <laughs> That'll do, <laughs> Muriel. Oh boy, yeah, this is this is some great a misogyny. <laughs> I said it as grimly as I could without taking the smile off my face, and it seemed to satisfy her because she smiled too in the same kind of grim businesslike way and got up. Let's go then. I got up and took her arm and let her lead me along the streets. And that is chapter 11 of Murder in the Glass Room. Oh, boy. Yeah, well, uh, well, Phil did it um, after asking a bunch of women at the dance hall and being as suspicious as possible. Um, he did manage to find the woman. It's It was the longest, least efficient, most harmful... <laughs> <laughs> most risky way to do what he did. Uh, yeah, he, he gave it his Phil Norris stamp <laughs> at every step of the way. But he did it. But he, he did it. He found Muriel. He from managed her, to keep her alive for now. From Edna's address book. So we, uh, we're going to find out more about who Muriel is next time. And, and by the way, I want to put an image in your head for the next episode. Imagine Muriel with a sharp object coming closer and closer to Phil 
as he lies awake pretending to be asleep. That's coming up next chapter. On Dirt Sheep. Dirt Sheep is a Neon Hum podcast. It's hosted by me, Jeffrey Golden. And me, Amanda Meadows. Our producer is Carla Green. Associate producer is Chloe Chobel. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Editing by Vikram Patel. Original music by Chris Katinas. Additional tracks you hear on this episode are from Epidemic Sound. Our engineer and sound effects guy is Scott Somerville. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Dirt Cheap Pod and Instagram at Dirt Cheap Books. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next episode for another exciting chapter of Murder in the Glass Room. <laughs> <laughs>